Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming. Host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic they make me feel polished and modern, and the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin, and so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands, and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z-ZIBBY20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white, open, long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Corny America. Check it out, Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Dot com and definitely check out those shows as well. Matthew Quick is the author of We Are the Light, a novel. Matthew is the New York Times bestselling author of The Silver Linings Playbook, which was made into an Oscar-winning film. The Good Luck of Right Now, Love May Fail, 
The Reason You're Alive, and four young adult novels. His work has been translated into more than 30 languages, received a Penn Hemingway Award Honorable Mention, and was a Los Angeles Times Book Prize finalist, a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice, and more. The Hollywood Reporter has named him one of Hollywood's 25 most powerful authors. Matthew lives with his wife, the novelist Alicia Bissett, on North Carolina's Outer Banks. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss We Are the Light, your latest novel. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. First of all, your book is funny at the same time as being devastating and thought-provoking. It has like all the good things. Oh my gosh. When uh, <laughs> when Lucas is like putting the mail through the slots and being like, well, I'm just, you know, I just happen to be walking by. So I'm going to just put these letters here. <laughs> I mean, just like all these things. I, I was like chuckling. And then the next paragraph would be something horrific. So it, it made for quite a ride. Beautiful, but amazing. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to hear. I'm glad you took something from it. So why don't you tell listeners a little bit about what We Are the Light is about and and how you came up with this idea? Well, uh, We Are the Light is a novel about a small town by the name of Majestic in Pennsylvania that experiences this horrific tragedy in a movie house. And out of the aftermath, our hero, Lucas Goodgame, he, he reaches out to his analyst, his Jungian analyst, who abandons him on page one. So he starts to write these letters to his analysts. And as we see the letters unfold, we really get to look at how Lucas's psyche is protecting him by using story and really holding him in this very careful way. And he constructs this narrative that is like almost like a womb for him while he heals and we get to see how the town, rather than puncturing that that protective bubble, really holds it in this very gentle way until Lucas can, can heal, his healing process can finish. I came up with this novel. I've been trying to write this novel since 2014. Uh, the, the shooting in Aurora, Colorado uh, really affected me. I'm, I'm a big movie goer, and movies has always been like a, a church to me. It's like mm-hmm. a sanctuary of story. And I was also a teacher, and, and it's interesting because Columbine didn't affect me as much as the, the movie theater. And I remember going to the theater afterwards, and for the first time in my life, looking over my shoulder and, you know, checking exits, who's sitting next to me. And so I did this event in Ambler, Pennsylvania, where I actually spoke at a movie theater in front of a packed house. And I remember during the talk, which went really well, addressing this wonderful community who was loving and kind. And that, that part of me was right there. But there was another part of my brain that was thinking, am I safe? And it was this really weird, almost paranoia uh, that kind of developed about movie houses. And I always say with my mental health problems, I take them into the creative writing wrestling ring and try to wrestle them down onto the page. But the second part of this story, I, I worked on that novel for years and I just could never get it right. And then I got sober in four years ago, and in my great reward for getting sober was crippling writer's block. And uh, <laughs> congratulations! I, yeah, it was wonderful. <laughs> and ego fought that really hard. You know, ego said you can just bull your way through. You can lone wolf it. Just sit down at the computer every single day and try to write. And I would work every day for eight hours. And Sometimes I wouldn't be able to write a single sentence and a year would go by and I'd have 10 pages and I would show them to my wife who's a novelist and she'd come back to me almost in tears because not because they were good, but because she was so afraid that I just had completely lost the ability to write. And so after three years of banging my head against my desk and not succeeding, ego was completely defeated. And uh, I entered into Jungian analysis. 
And very early on in my analysis, I became very attached to my analyst in this very profound and scary way. And he was helping me. I knew that. But this sick part of me kept thinking, oh, when is he going to abandon me? When is he going to disappear? And what happens if he gets sick and he goes away? And so I took that paranoia to the creative writing wrestling ring. And I thought, wait a minute, what if I combine this with my movie house idea? And that's how the novel was born, by combining those two things. And when I sat down and started to write We Are the Light, and I wrote those first two words, Dear Carl, it was like a magic spell. My writer's block had been lifted and I couldn't stop writing. I was writing 10, 12 hours a day, just go, 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 go for this six weeks of bliss. It was like being able to breathe again after four years of not breathing. But it was very strange. And, you know, my analyst would say that psyche shut me down until I would go through this process. And I was emotionally, spiritually, mentally ready to write this book. And, and I think that that's true. Wow. In your relationship with your analyst, did he say, I love you? Because that was another really funny line. <laughs> when you guys uh, well, were, when that happened with Lucas and his therapist. I made a rule that I'm not going to talk specifically about things that happen in, in my analysis, but I will say that the novel is very much inspired by my experience with my analyst who, who didn't abandon me. <laughs> Thank Thank goodness. But I think that's as much as I want to say about Sorry, I didn't mean to pry. I did not mean to pry. It's fine. I don't mind you asking. Well, there were so many parts about surviving a tragedy that were in here from Mm. Lucas feeling sort of shunned a little bit by the survivors because he didn't want to get into the activism that was required or he felt it was required afterwards, which I thought was interesting. And how do you be the right kind of survivor in your community when you're all still there every day if you don't sort of drink the Kool-Aid on wanting to fight? Like he he very much didn't want to fight. In fact, his relationship with the brother of the perpetrator of all of this has sort of ostracized him in a way. So can you talk about sort of this notion of like how do you be how do you be the right kind of survivor? What does that mean? Or are you so do you have to be part of this whole group if you feel differently than everybody else? Well, I'll start by saying that as an introvert, I, I face this dilemma all the time because I think as an introvert, a lot of very complicated things go on inside of me all the time that are very private. And I think we live in an extroverted world, and particularly lately with social media, we're expected to extrovert everything all the time. And when it comes to activism, sometimes there's this great pressure to, you know, say the right thing, join the right side. And, and I think Sometimes a little more complicated than that. Sometimes there's a lot of things going on in people. But there's a quote from Young that I love, and I, I am not someone who memorizes quotes, so I will summarize it. Now, I, I know I will get it wrong, but the gist of it is uh, where there is love, there's no will to power. And when there's will to power, there can be no love because the two are the opposites of each other. They're, they're the shadow of one another. And so I think that Lucas, his response to the tragedy is, is all out love. And mm-hmm. Sandra Coyle's response is all out power. Yeah. And because they're, they're the shadow of one another, they're very attracted mm-hmm. to each other. Like Lucas wants Sandra to join the movie crusade. Sandra wants him to join the actors. And so in some ways, they're kind of the same person. They're just the shadow of each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. And so... While I was writing, of course, I was inhabiting Lucas's mind, so I was kind of on Team Lucas. But as someone who steps out of the novel, not a writer anymore, just observing, I'm very sympathetic to to both. You know, mm-hmm. I can I completely understand why Sandra feels that the way that she does. But I also feel, again, as an introvert, we live in a time where it's very prescriptive. 
And we say everyone has to act this way. Everyone has to have the same response to a tragedy. Everyone has to have the same political opinion. And I think that that is is dangerous because we relegate the opposite side to shadow or we other the opposite side. And so I really wanted to write a novel where the response to this problem or my character's response was this radical love and this radical inclusion, which feels in some ways transgressive in in the current climate. Yes. But I think that there's a hunger for that. Mm -hmm. And as uh, I raise this to consciousness through the novel, I see people responding in ways that let me know that there are a lot of people out there that are hungry for an inclusive kind of love, particularly men, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of men out there that are hurting, that are looking for a way to find the ability to be loved and to love other people. That's beautiful. It's really important that you say that. So that's that's great. Thank you. Lucas's love transcends this world, actually, and goes to his recently deceased wife, Darcy. Or Darcy, right? Darcy? Yep, yeah, yep, Darcy. Yep. <laughs> Once, like you said one time, Dar, sometimes I drop the last syllable or something. You said something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, but he's really convinced that he is with an angel and that there are feathers that he collects and puts in a baggie that he says this is proof that she is here. And, yeah. um, you know, he feels bad for other people who don't see that and feels like, he would be cheating on his wife if, you know, for the nights yeah. that other things start to happen. Talk about that. And what are your, well, if you feel comfortable, like your views on what happens after death or what you were trying to show by what, what this relationship was that he continued having with his wife after she passed away? Well, I'll start by saying what happens after death is probably above my pay grade. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to make I, any I'm proclamations about I'm that. I'm looking <laughs> for new data. But I I think Lucas, you know, as we learned through the novel, has a very complicated relationship with his mother and he has a very complicated relationship with the feminine. And Darcy comes into his life as a young man and really helps him form a new type of relationship with the feminine that that is very healing and beautiful and and positive. And she really holds him in this way that, that is very healing to his masculinity. And so when he very suddenly loses her. He's in crisis. And so he elevates his wife psychologically to the role of the divine feminine. You know, she becomes a goddess to him, literally. She's an angel. And and that archetype is something that he needs in order for his psyche not to fracture. And so, of course, Darcy's best friend, Joe, comes in and starts to help him reorient to the feminine in the, the, I don't want to say the real world, but in the physical world, you know, Mm -hmm. because Darcy exists in the mental world. But it's this question of these powers that are greater than us. And, you know, Jung was very curious about this, you know, whether we're talking about archetypes or whether we're talking about the numinous, the divine. And so Lucas, and I think most people who go through a horrific tragedy like these, these forces that are greater than us descend upon us. And the only way that we can fight back against them is to find something that is of that level. And I know for me, with my sobriety, early sobriety, it was, it was really tough to fight that because it was this huge thing until I started thinking through the Jungian analysis about, you know, the archetypes and, you know, the, the power within me and the connection to psyche and the connection to the self 
then I could start fighting back because I had something as powerful. Ego can't fight those things. Um, mm. Ego is very brittle. And, you know, so Lucas, I'm sure would very much, his ego would very much want to say, I'm powerful enough to stand up to this level of tragedy. But of course, it's not. Um, none of our egos are that that strong that can withstand that. So we need something more. And I think that's where love comes in. I think that's where the divine feminine comes in. I think that's where community comes in. I think his relationships with other men, particularly Isaiah, um, mm-hmm. is really positive masculinity with these men who love him unabashedly, who touch him, who hug him, who tell them they love him, who act in ways that are incredibly positive. All of this is really necessary for Lucas to begin to heal. And in many ways, even though I didn't suffer a tragedy of that magnitude ever in my life, getting sober and kind of having my psyche fracture and realizing that I had to reinvent myself and get to know myself again was this really tremendous thing. And I had to rely on the kindness and love of my wife. My closest guy friends really rallied around me and showed up repeatedly every every week in very simple ways, having lunch, phone calls. We started movie club. But those, those things and those acts of love, that steady showing up every week, really held my psyche together in a way that got me through the writer's block and got me through early sobriety. And the beginning of that felt like I was against, you know, these huge forces that I didn't understand. And so those simple things and those people rallying around me and then the work I did through Jungian analysis really gave me the tools to kind of fight back against these what felt like incredibly dark forces at the time. So you've essentially written a thank you note. Yes. Yeah. I think... Um, Even in letter form. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, I, I think it's a thank you letter. You know, I, I don't want everyone to be didactic when I'm writing fiction. But in some ways, it's it's a, it's an instruction manual too, you know, for mm-hmm. these times. Um, and I I didn't mean it to be that way. But as I look back, and I, I usually write in kind of a fever dream. You know, I'm an intuitive creative, so when I write, I just kind of let go. It almost feels like channeling. And then, of course, I go back and psychoanalyze myself, and you know, my my analyst reads my book and tells me what I was doing, and. And you realize that, wow, like I was very unconscious of a lot of the material that was moving through this novel, but the unconscious was also sorting all of this stuff for me as well. So the writing process was was very much a, a healing process for me. I felt that at the time because it felt like this self was aligned with this project. So it was very euphoric, but I didn't really understand what was happening in real time. Mm-hmm. It's only a couple of years later that I, I look at it and I can see what Psyche was doing, what the unconscious was doing, and how my ego kind of got knocked offline to allow this book to move through me. Wow, so interesting. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I feel like maybe your therapist needs to analyze lots of books. <laughs> yeah, if you're a novelist, uh, yeah, yeah. You're, you need to know that if you are in analysis or you're in therapy, yes. they, w- they will get a lot of information out of your work. You know? Wow. And those of us with the right eyes and ears, you know, to see and hear, can, I think we could do that to any artist, really. I mean, this could be your side hustle, you know, analyzing <laughs> other, other novels. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about this, but was there a moment, like a hitting bottom type of moment or a moment where you decided to get sober that, and or did you try repeatedly? And like, what what was it that led you at this point four years ago? I flirted with sobriety for a while. And I think in my early 40s, I had some health scares. Uh, I went to the doctor and you know, I had really high blood pressure. I was, I was about 60 pounds heavier than I am now. And he told me that I had gout. And I thought, wait a minute, people who get gout are 80 years old. Like, how could I possibly have that? There was another moment too, where we were at the Wright Brothers Memorial, which is a couple miles down the road from where I live. And it's this flat open space. And of course, the memorial is like straight up and it's basically a lightning rod. And so lightning came and it's always risky in the Outer Banks. You, you got to get in. And so I started to try to run to the car and I ran about 20 feet and I realized I couldn't run anymore. And it was this moment where I thought, okay, this, is, this has got to stop. Uh, and there was another moment too, where I'd gone on vacation and people had taken pictures of me and I looked at them and I literally didn't recognize myself. I thought, who is that person? And I'm like, oh, that's you. And so it was this moment where... <laughs> I realized how kind of just out of control I had gotten with it. It was never a rock bottom moment where I woke up in a gutter, or I got fired from my job, right? It was more just kind of, I wasn't seeing what was happening because alcohol is something that numbs. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, and alcohol is kind of like a womb. It numbs you. It puts you in this very passive state. And I enjoyed that for, for a couple decades until I didn't anymore. And so when, how did Silver Linings Playbook fit into everything? The success of that, the movie, the, like, was that a celebration? Like, did that amplify the, the negative forces or was that, like, how did that affect your life, really? Well, I'll be, you know, from a career standpoint, it was amazing. Well, you yeah, know, no, I mean, like your emotional, yeah, I mean, your mental health and all that. <laughs> but from a mental health standpoint, it was very disorienting, you know, to go from an unknown writer to talking to Harvey Weinstein on the phone every day and having him sending me places and tell me to write things and do things. So that, that, that in and of itself, just dealing with Harvey was, was a mentally straining situation for all the reasons you might imagine. But also too, you know, when you're in the MFA grad school, you have all these friends and you're all writers and you're all in the same place. Mm-hmm. And then you get a movie deal and no, you're no longer in the same place and you, you don't have peers anymore. And of course, my friends were very gracious and wonderful, but they don't know what it's like to do that. And so it's, it was very disorienting and expectations were really high. And um, 
I'd never been media trained. So all of a sudden I'm, I'm in a room doing satellite interviews for hours. And I feel that I did the best I could at the time. And I think that I did well, but I was also, you know, on Klonopin and I was drinking heavily and, you know, all of the things that I hadn't dealt with and analysis were all there bubbling up. And I just was pushing it down and pushing it down. And I do think that ratcheted things up. Um, and I remember going to the Oscars and just feeling so much anxiety to the point where I, I just wanted to leave. But the funny thing was that there are plenty of extremely famous people that I won't name names that looked exactly like I did when the cameras were off. And so it was one of these things that you think you know what you see when you're seeing on TV and in the movies, and then you see what it's really like behind the scenes. And it's, it's a very, very different experience. Those people work extremely hard and they're in, mm-hmm. under incredible amounts of pressure um, that I think the general public doesn't appreciate. And, and my level was nowhere near what you know the A-listers were going through. But it was one of those moments where you realize that you're so privileged to be there and everybody is looking at you as though like you've quote unquote made it. And yet I felt like I was falling apart inside. So it was this very strange separation between what people were seeing on social media and what was really going on privately with me. And so maintaining that persona, if you will, took a lot of bandwidth. And I think that kind of led to my crash as well. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. People always think, you know, grass is always greener or whatever. Like if if only I were a movie star, if only this, but people don't know. No. And I think everybody has their own private battles they're going through, whether you're an A-lister in Hollywood or, you know, the person that lives down the street, you Mm -hmm. know, we all, we all have that drama and going on in our head and we all have hurts. We all have pains, you know, so. Well, just because you're famous doesn't mean you're not like a person. I think people forget that famous people are people. (laughs) I think too. And I think the other thing that I've I've thought a lot about is how do you get the drive to become famous or how did I, speaking from personal experience, Mm -hmm. how did I get the drive to become a New York Times bestseller or to go to the Oscars? And I think that it was, it was born, the engine of that was tremendous pain, you know, it was Mm -hmm. psychological pain and trying to prove my worth, trying to figure out who I am, trying to understand why it was that, you know, some people could go into a high school and teach for 20 years and feel fine. And for me, I went in and it felt like my head was going to explode. Like, why was that? Mm. Like, what, what was going on with me? And so that drive to figure that out really is what created the art. And so in some ways, it's, it's a gift and a curse. And so a lot of these genius actors or directors, like they have that engine going on as well. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we see when we see just the glitz and the glamour, you know, but I think most creative types, they pay a price for, for, you know, the spark that, that allows them to put something on the page or up on the screen or to inhabit a character. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes people are quick to admire the so-called rewards of that, but they're not so quick to acknowledge the price of that. And I think that's, my analyst always says about anything that I do, like, are you willing to pay the price for that? And I think that's not something that we really talk about openly in the current zeitgeist, but there's always a price. I feel like there's, uh, it's so obvious in politics to be on, not that I want to talk about politics, but just the the personal cost and all the things you have to be willing to sacrifice. Yeah. It's never been more obvious than some of the recent events, Yeah, but it's absolutely true. Do you feel like, 
now that you've done all this work, you can point to the pain points of your own life that led you down these paths? Like, do you feel like you've processed it all and you're like, okay, it was a combination of X, Y, and Z and and that's kind of what did it? Or is that overly simplistic? I don't think it's overly simplistic. I, I think I think it's the work of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was a moment early on in my analysis where I had a couple months under my belt and I said to my analyst, you know, are we almost done? You know, like, am I going to be able to write? You know, it feels like we've done a lot of work here. And he's just very wisely said, well, I don't know. You know, when I did my analysis, it took 20 years. But, you know, you you, you might think yours is going to take two months. It seems a little... Um, brazen to say that, but, you know, we can explore. And then I realized, you know, I needed to come to this with more humility. I think I have learned a lot about my own personal psyche and my pain and what was driving. And, and I can look back. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get into all of this right here. And, and, no, no, you know, I don't but, mean, I just wondered if you yeah. had figured it out, not that I want you to share it. I mean, <laughs> that's not what I wasn't going for that. I just wanted to know, <laughs> no, like, I understand. is it possible to pinpoint, you know, we all obviously have so much that makes up who we are today. Right. And it's just, yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's peeling the onion layers. Yeah. And again, it's the work of a lifetime. And I think that can sound daunting, you know, like, well, never get but then there's always something to get up and do tomorrow you know there's always yes. there's always more work to do so I, I look at it in a positive way and how are you feeling about work going forward are you still able to write like did did the spigot close after this novel came out or is it still well, dripping or are you is it pouring out or i will knock on wood here because i don't want to jinx anything but i actually just finished my my next novel yesterday so i'm very happy i got the rough draft done before book tour and uh so that is moment, so exciting. Yeah. thank you yeah so it's still going can you say anything about that book no i cannot okay All right. yeah but good try <laughs> thank you thank you <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really happy for you. That's good. Thank you. Thank I feel you. like there's always this fear that, uh, you know, the well will dry up again. Or Oh, uh, there's still that fear. <laughs> I'm delighted to hear that. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? I think the best advice is to not try to be someone else and not mm -hmm. try to be the thing that your agent or whoever is trying to make you be. But to get quiet, to go inside and, and do the work to get to know yourself the best that you can, and then ask your soul or your psyche, like, what is the story that wants to come through me? And I remember doing the MFA and having very brilliant and wonderful teachers, and they would tell me, hey, try this or try it. And I would do all of it, almost like a workbook, because mm -hmm. I could learn. But I wrote the Silver Linings Playbook in secret, and I didn't show it to anyone. Um, because that was the thing I, that was going to be me. And so I think you need to be humble enough to, to learn from other people and, and glean from the masters, but you also have to have a sense of self and know when to break away and do the thing that you're meant to do. And then to find the people who get that thing and love it and will help grow it. I think that I also think another great piece of advice that was given to me early on was be professional and I think to be grateful and to really be good to the people that come around and shake your hand, you know, shake their hand back and staying humble. It's hard, you know, over the long haul, you know, and if, if you don't stay humble, you will be humble. And I've learned that, you know, my writer's block taught me that. So stay humble, work hard and know who you are. And my last question, do you feel more comfortable now going to the movies? 
I do. Yeah. I, I would say that I feel more comfortable going out in general through my analysis. You know, there was a in early sobriety, I, I became very hermit-like and I would only go into the woods and run and then be in my house. And so I branched out and next week I'm going to be on a plane every single day. So it's oh going to be, uh, I know it's going to be a, a big transition for mm-hmm. me, but I've done a lot of work to prepare for that and I'm feeling good about it. I, I had a therapist when I was telling them how little I like to leave my house. She was like, I, I feel like you're actually borderline agoraphobic. And I was like, I thought I just liked being home, you know? I just yeah, I very like much here. like being home too. Yeah. Yeah, the so. fine line. It is, yeah, yeah, anyway. yeah. All right, well, congratulations on your next book thank and so on Share the Light. And I wish you all the best yeah, on tour. Good thank luck. you. All right. yeah, it's Yay. a pleasure. All right, thanks so much. Take yeah. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.